kind of put it succinctly, I think I would think about this in terms of, you know, what needs to happen on your systems and process side. That's one. And then the second one is on the people side. What do you need to do? And then lastly, just on your own leadership psychology around uh, M&A and what you need to bring to the game. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. I'm your host, Shabam Data, at Shabam on Twitter. If this is your first episode, welcome, and thanks for checking it out. For those returning listeners, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you've subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show on whichever platform you're hearing this now. It would mean so much to me and help spread the stories of these amazing finance leaders we feature on The Backbone. On to the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Cy Fard, CFO at Tulip, mobile in-store platform built exclusively for store associates. At Tulip, Cy is responsible for managing the company's financials and employee success, including financial planning and analysis, tax management, employee hiring, staff diversity, and professional development. Prior to Tulip, she served as a group CFO at TravelEdge since 2015 and led the company's global finance operations through a period of rapid organic growth, M&A, and integration. She previously held executive leadership positions at MarketWired, a global communications and media company, and Sysimos, a SaaS online analytics technology provider. Sai holds both Canadian and U.S. CPA designations and began her career at PwC. She is a speaker and volunteer for several women in leadership organizations and holds a board of directors seat with Job Skills, a Canadian not-for-profit committed to advancing opportunities for underemployed citizens. And so without further ado, here's Cy Fard, Chief Financial Officer at Tulip Retail. Hey Cy, how's it going? Good. How about yourself? Good. Good. Thanks. Well, we've got lots to get through today, so let's dive right into it. So you started your career with PwC. From there, you held many progressive roles within finance from Sysimos, MarketWired, and TravelEdge, where you were the CFO. You're now in the CFO seat at Tulip. So talk to me about your journey into tech and finance and how it all started for you. Sure. So I'll start back uh, all the way to 2003. I graduated from Queen's University in uh, 03 after what was a fairly chaotic year in 2002 with uh, a lot of disruption in the uh, capital markets. And there was also an Arthur Anderson blitz that happened right before. So it felt like a, a quite an interesting year to get out into the workforce. And uh, being the child of immigrants, I thought I would still pick what felt like a safe path and, and start my career as a CA. I joined PwC in 2003. And in retrospect, that uh, was actually a great jumping off point into uh, what became the rest of my career. From PwC, I uh, went on uh, to have about a couple of years at Canadian Tire. And uh, following that, I was recruited into a private entity called MarketWired. And MarketWired at the time was owned by Omer's Private Equity and uh, also Manulife jointly. It's been since sold a couple of times, but it, it was sold to NASDAQ uh, while I was there, or I guess just immediately after. 
I was lucky to have been at uh, MarketWired during the, I think, up to, I think it was the summer around eight years that I spent there. Had about five roles, progressive roles there, and uh, started as a um, financial planning and analysis manager and kind of rose uh, with uh, the rise of the organization. I I left there as as a VP finance. The other reason I was quite... um, excited, or I guess I was quite lucky, I should say, to have been there uh, during the eight years that I was. Um, there was an acquisition of a software entity, which, um, you know, Sysimos, which really um, introduced me to the world of a SaaS and uh, software while I was there. And um, it was it was a very, very high growth company that uh, was acquired at $1 million through uh, an M&A deal, and that we grew to $55 million by the time that I left. So, a lot of uh, great uh, stories from you know that period in my career. A lot of great learning. Um, I left. MarketWired actually because of a uh, maternity leave. I took a six-month maternity leave and while um, I was out, I was recruited into my my first CFO role with a company called Travel Edge. I was group CFO there for three years and uh, that role was mainly an uh, post uh, M&A. Uh, there was some M&A while I was there as well and uh, also it was just heavy on integration. So I got a lot of um, good um, skills during those years in uh, seeing the aftermath of uh, M&A and, and really working through integration issues. Again, uh, there was another uh, maternity leave that followed. I took another six-month leave, and uh, that led to my role here at Tulip, where I am the CFO. Awesome. That's a great overview. Thanks so much. And so now that you're at Tulip, tell me a little bit more about Tulip, what the company does, and what is it all about? Sure. So Tulip is a software leader in the digital transformation of the retail industry which should hopefully feel a little bit tangible uh, to you. Our clients are some of the biggest names in retail. So I'll name a few just to see if anyone is triggered by some of the experiences that they've had yeah. uh, within uh, within some of these retailers. So Saks Fifth Avenue, uh, Tiffany's, Chanel, Kate Spade, Coach, amongst others are uh, some of our, our, our clients. And uh, specifically on our uh, platforms and apps, uh, we... Um, have apps uh, that essentially are aimed at improving the in-store experience of customers that are interacting with store associates. Um, We'll know obviously from our experiences online that innovation is plenty online with e-commerce. And so what we're trying to do is level the playing field within the the store, within uh, the bricks and mortar experiences that uh, customers have. Um, In terms of the specifics of our products, there's, you know, we have several, but uh, two that I think are fairly tangible to explain. The first one's called Clienteling, and that's an app which is a digitized version of a retail black book. So, um, you know, if anyone's worked in high-end retail, um, you'll know that uh, there is the best sales folks or the best sales associates in store um, have a really good understanding of who their recurring customers are, and uh, they track that in in their own in their own way. Our tool allows 
a digital digitized version of that where the IP, which is the customer relationships, is actually held by retailers and uh, there's you know data and analytics available to see you know what types of practices are working. The other tool is uh, one that's called Checkout. Checkout, as you can guess from the name, is a mobile store checkout experience. So if you've been inside a Michael Kors or an Indigo lately, um, you would have come across, if you've been checked out on a mobile device, that would be our software that is in store. Very cool. So what you're doing, if I can repeat it back to you, is empowering the sales associate to be able to connect uh, closer with the, the customer and then ultimately also help them check out? Absolutely. It's a much more intimate experience in um, allowing the in-store associates to have um, access to some of the tools that are otherwise only available online to customers. We want to make sure that the store associate has just as much, if not more, uh, information and innovation at their fingertips on the apps that they're using as a customer would be able to access online. So there's um, creating a, a more sticky relationship, a much more intimate relationship with customers. That makes a ton of sense. And as you were describing that experience, um, you know, uh, as you named off a bunch of the, the brands that you did, I imagine that the sales process for a lot of these companies and, and customers of yours are going through the head offices of them. And so further, when you make a sale to that retailer, which for this uh, discussion, let's call that the account, I imagine that they would either buy one location or multiple locations, uh, which will each have a different number of store associates that require that software. So all of this to get to my question now, which is in this setting, how do you think about churn and other metrics? Are you, do you think about them at the associate level or the location level or the retailer or the quote unquote, the account level? How, how do you, at which level do you think about churn and, and why is that important? And that's a really good question. So in, in terms of uh, kind of uh, the way that we sell, so first of all, just a bit of background. So we sell to regions of the world. So let's say Michael Kors, if they're in uh, North America, they we contract with them on a region by region basis. And, and we've recently had uh, a lot of luck expanding into, into Europe and, and also uh, Asia this year. Um, from a churn perspective, what we talk about in the uh, executive suite is often the uh, logo churn. So we start at the, the highest level and logo churn for us is, is one that we watch closely. The teams that we have, so Retail Excellence is a team that we have on the ground that, that works directly with retailers on the adoption um, and the uh, essentially the lift that the stores or retailers are expecting to see from the use of the technology. That team looks uh, far more closely at the uh, kind of the lower level churn that, that you're talking about. In our case, it's actually uh, often there's the rate of expansion. So um, we're seeing, you know, virtually every brand that we've brought in expanding into uh, additional stores, um, but also just uh, looking that same team works to measure how quickly we think that uh, retailers will be moving into other regions of the world. They, they um, work very, very closely with retailers to um, ensure that the, the numbers that, that we're seeing, that that's conveyed back. And often retailers actually have better data than, uh, than we see uh, as well on our side because there are 
uh, components of that of their data that we have access to, components that they only have access to that we won't we won't get to see, um, just based on the competitive nature of how retail works. And so that team gets to work very, very closely. Um, and, and the results uh, that you're talking about on um, uplift and churn um, are conversation topics uh, specifically with, within that team. The comment that you made about expansion is that at the, I guess, there'd be two factors on that. One would be expanding geography like you mentioned, so expanding into other regions that the headquarter of that retailer may want to. I, I guess, is there also expansion at the store level? Like if if an individual store ramps up hiring or something like that, and there are more associates, does that also lead to expansion? For us, the way that our product is priced, we actually will not charge additionally for an existing store that has additional reps that come in because we want to make sure that the technology is as accessible as possible and that it's adopted as as deeply as um, as it can be within an individual store. Our contracts are based on a per store count. And so region region growth, that's, that's one area where we can grow. We also see uh, a significant number of our clients once they've had one uh, one of our apps, they'll want to see an expansion into the second one. So, for example, if a client has clienteling, they're often talking to us about their upcoming plans and their own business practices and change management plans that will see them adopting the checkout product or vice versa. So it's uh, right. upsell um, also. Um, and and uh, I guess the future, I think this is where you're going. The future for us also includes uh, future generation versions of these products and any, any other um, top secret projects that we're working on. So expansion is also cross-selling your other products into the, into the account. I'm going to stop myself because I know I can go down this rabbit hole for a while <laughs> for, the, for the benefit of our, our listeners. I, I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about uh, KPIs and metrics more broadly. And so... In, in your eyes, what would you say are the KPIs and metrics that are most indicative of Tulip's business? And I guess asked another way, what are the top three metrics that you check every day? Sure. And I know you and I chatted a little bit about this on a, on a prior call. Um, the, the first thing I think that's, that was evidence to me uh, as, I, as I took on this role and got a little bit deeper into understanding what drives this business is that um, a lot of what happens day to day um, on the ground, while it is really, really important from a tactics perspective, if you if you step back, the type of business that we're in has very long deal cycles. Um, so up to a year for us, if, if you can imagine selling to retailers um, and getting on their radar, mm. it takes it takes at least um, you know nine months to sometimes a year, sometimes even longer, depending on who you're dealing with. Our implementation timelines are also six months um, in on average because we're we're integrating with so many source systems and the the product is um, it, it's a heavy build in order to deliver on the innovation that um, we've been able to work out for uh, for retailers. So you can't really look at the business on a day-to-day basis in the same way as, let's say, I would have been able to in uh, in travel where, uh, you know, the, uh, the you can really move the dial in a given day in, in, in travel in terms of what you sell and right. wholesale or retail. So very different in, in, in terms of kind of um, what I'm dealing with here. 
Um, you asked, I think you just uh, asked me about the specifics of what, what I think are important metrics. For, for me, there are three that I would say um, are, are key for us. One is pipeline volume and uh, velocity. So how quickly are we building opportunities on, on the ground and how fast are the opportunities moving through the, the Salesforce stages? That's one. The second one is customer acquisition cost and uh, unit economics. I think anyone that works in SaaS will be able to uh, relate to this. That's that's quite a key one. And the third one is customer health. I think in our business, obviously, that's that's quite an important one. And specifically, you know, how we measure that. I think that's probably going to be, uh, an, it, you know, a question that you might have. Customer health for us, one of the measures is the number of health, help tickets and how old are they? How quickly are we addressing them? How quickly are they building up? Um, that tells you a lot about the health of uh, each customer. And then outside of the the sort of more business-facing metrics, I think cash burn, obviously for any CFO that works in uh, a VC a VC-led uh, environment, uh, watching cash burn and having a really good idea of where cash uh, is meant to come in at at the, at the end of a week or a month, depending on kind of um, what part of the cycle we're at. I think that's, it, that is um, another one that I would add. The first two that I want to drill into a bit more is um, you mentioned that one of the things you look at is kind of the sales pipeline as well as the sales velocity. And then the second one was uh, your customer acquisition cost. Would you say that the, those two are kind of related metrics in that, you know, you could expedite a sales process, but, you know, you may have to spend a lot more to acquire that customer. Like, do you look at those uh, metrics in tandem or, or would you say that they're best left to their own devices and kept separate? That, that's actually a really good point. So I think obviously the first one, as you think about it, so pipeline volume and velocity, I think for me, that's um, an ear to the ground on what's happening with uh, our business development efforts. But obviously they do feed into essentially at the end of the day what your customer acquisition costs are how efficient you are on unit economics i think um, that's a really good point that they are they are quite quite related um, i think customer acquisition and unit economics at the end of the day i you know if you're looking at you know what happens on the ground what are you measuring closely i would say it's more pipeline volume and velocity how are we doing there and um, you know, how are the teams governing themselves or running themselves in, within sales and marketing around those stats? Obviously, the, uh, the product of that is uh, customer acquisition uh, costs and our unit economics specifically around efficiency. So they're less of a kind of a week by week measure, but they're a byproduct or I guess a, mm -hmm. uh, a product of how that, um, how we're doing on, on the rest of the measures in sales and marketing. Switching gears now, throughout your career, one of the things I've noticed is you've gone through quite a few M&A processes and, and divestitures even. So what are some of the best practices for systems integration or separation in the case of divestitures that, that people should be thinking about um, given your experiences in, in that field? Sure. And I know, again, you, you and I chatted about this just briefly in uh, the introductory call that we had. So um, to kind of put it succinctly, I think I would think about this in terms of, you know, what needs to happen on your systems and process side. That's one. And then the second one is on the people side. What do you need to do? And then lastly, just on your own leadership psychology around uh, M&A and what you need to bring to the game as, um, you know, whether it's a CFO or just an, a senior member in finance. 
So first on the system and process side, my advice on this, just based on what I've seen, is to not leave your house in a state of disarray. Uh, you know, if you know that there are areas of cleanup that are required and that you think that there is an MA scenario looming, um, I would say clean up and do projects as you go. Don't wait for that event to take place because in nine times out of 10, you don't have enough time uh, to do that cleanup when you need to. So um, be mindful to do that, um, you know, as, as you go as part of business as usual. On the people side, I think it's important to make sure that you are building a finance team, not just for, uh, you know, the, the scenarios that, that I guess the current state, but that you're, you're building a team that can handle uh, a transaction that might be looming. Don't wait um, if, if you can, because if as a CFO, you're the most experienced person on everything that needs to happen. Um, pre-M&A or I guess during, um, then you're going to be stretched way too thin. And I think, you know, we that that's when um, you run into, again, scenarios where uh, you're running against a clock. So make sure you're building a team that has a diverse set of skills and that addresses as many of today's challenges as, as you think you're going to have some medium-term challenges coming up with M&A um, and the types of work that, that's required. If you don't know what types of roles are required or what types of skills, I think get the advice early. Talk to other CFOs that have gone through the types of change that you're about to experience and make sure that that uh, you're addressing uh, the team build earlier on. And then lastly, on psychology, I would say that um, it's, it's really... Uh, I'm not sure if this is, you know, uh, really obvious, but M&A brings out a lot of emotion on both sides of the the uh, transaction, whether it's on integration or uh, the psychology around um, around a sale. Make sure that you're prepared to go uh, into that scenario, being objective with your own emotions. And I think um, this is this is something that that I've learned as I've either observed the aftermath of M&A and just how everyone reacts post, or even just um, as, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, been leading teams through some of the, the changes myself. It's, it's really important as a CFO uh, that, you know, you're an objective and strategic partner to the CEO, um, but also a representative uh, to the, to the shareholders. And I think the only way that um, you can, you can plan for that is to, again, uh, just have a sense of what that psychology involves. Talk to, if you think you're getting close to an M&A scenario, um, whether you're a buyer or a seller, I think it's important if you haven't been through it to talk to uh, mentors in the space that have had the experience. They can kind of walk you through the key things before you're left in that scenario yourself. Wow, I love that framework that you just laid out, which was cleaning up the the function, making sure the systems are right, systems are in place, and uh, you know, making sure that you have the right team around you to be able to uh, go through this. Because as you said, these things happen pretty fast, uh, and before you know it, you know the the transaction is is over. Um, and and then the third piece, which I think is so important, and, and a lot of times forgotten and not really uh, thought about, is just the psychological aspect of it, the emotions, and um, just managing all of that being a CFO or someone in the finance leader seat uh, it's kind of expected that you have like you you see kind of level headed throughout the entire process so uh, that, that's really an interesting framework and and uh, a, a really good one so thanks for sharing that 
Yeah, no problem. I often find that last one is overlooked, but it's it's quite critical when you're leading through change. So last question here before we jump into our quick fire round, and that is, in your opinion, what is the biggest misconception about the finance function within a technology company? So on the misconception front, I'll just kind of share what was one of my own misconceptions. I'm not sure if it's the biggest one all around, but in terms of my own, sure. in case you have uh, uh, folks in the audience uh, listening in that are earlier in their career, I, uh, you know, coming coming into the um, the the finance function with and with a, a CA background and an insurance background, I you know earlier on in my career, I didn't really. Uh, understand how much of a business partner finance was to the rest of the organization, how much, how much of our role in finance touches on decision-making outside of finance, you know, and, and this, this goes beyond even just financial planning and analysis. I think the, the best uh, CEOs and most CEOs actually that I've I've worked with uh, really understand that value of finance, that it is more than just producing historical, historical numbers. Um, and I think in order to grow in careers, if, you know, if we're talking to folks obviously that are uh, looking at growth in their careers, it's, it's really important that that be absorbed and that they, you know, that anyone who's looking at uh, elevating their career in finance really looks for opportunities to business partner outside of finance, using financial skills and analytic skills but obviously business partnering as, as much as uh, possible to lean in on decision analysis. So I would say that was probably my biggest learning going from mid-career uh, all the way up to leadership. Wow. Yeah. Just, you know, making sure that the table stakes, uh, which are kind of the reporting and, and FP&A and these kinds of things are in order and really being able to be that uh, business partner along with the CEO. That. that that sounds like a great advice. <laughs> I, I'm glad, and not not to knock the earlier uh, skills that I think are you know they're table stakes when you when you move up, but, but you know certainly the years need to be there where you're where you're building those skills because it's def- definitely hard yeah. to um, move beyond without it. But definitely past mid level, I think the game changes. What I'd love to do now is jump into our quick fire round. The way this works is I'll ask you some questions. You'll have ten to fifteen seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? That sounds great. <laughs> bit under fire but let's see how it goes <laughs> all right what is your go-to online resource for all things startup finance or growth finance related so i'm gonna take a contrarian uh answer for you on this all right let's do it. Um, so i i don't usually go online for anything like this i think this will this will kind of lean on an earlier answer that i gave i often call a mentor or um you know other cfos i, I usually prefer to use uh, the experience of somebody who has been through more than I have, and I've been really lucky in my career in that I have uh, quite a few folks who will pick up a phone and uh, will talk me through their experience. Wow, that's awesome, and definitely contrarian. Haven't heard that one before, so I like it. Uh, what's your What's your favorite productivity hack? My favorite productivity hack, I think, the one that I can't live without is that my emails are auto sorted and they're actually color coded. So, um, you know, when I come in the morning, I can uh, have kind of one look at my mailbox and I'll know um, what types of what types of folks are trying to get a hold of me. And I um, have done the color coding just to uh, give myself a sense of, you know, where to go to first. I've heard a variation of that before, but the, the color coding of, of who's sending who, what is uh, is impressive. That's cool. Um, what's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing? I don't like leaving the office 
uh, without doing at least uh, a debrief on paper of what my follow-ups are from meetings because I find there are, there are just too many meetings in a day and unless you write down or action via emails what your next steps are, you've essentially been at a meeting without any outcome. <laughs> I'm also, I have to say, my memory is not as good as it used to be. So I think that that is one that um, has helped a lot. Uh, What's one tech jargon that makes you cringe? On this one, again, another contrarian answer. Um, English is actually my second language. So I've been told by um, both uh, folks I've worked with and my husband that I shouldn't use expressions or jargon so um, I think most of it uh, I wouldn't say it makes me cringe but I just stay away from it as much as I can because I know I can't get it right yeah yeah uh, what's the best advice you've received so far in your career best advice I, I was actually asked this at another another talk and um, so this one is is fresh in my mind um, the best advice I would say is that a CEO that I worked with earlier on, his name is Michael Nallen, he's actually the CEO of uh, MarketWired. He uh, gave me the advice that it takes it takes all kinds and that there's no one size fits all CFO. This was earlier on in my career when uh, I was having a career chat with him. And uh, he gave me that advice, but he also said to me, you know what, you have to be true to who you are and what your core skills are because CFOs come in sort of different, uh, in different uh, sizes or different d- different uh, skill sets that they've been born out of. And, uh, but he did say, make sure that you feel out every scenario that you're in and dig deep for, um, in order to play the part uh, right. Because if you try to be the same person in every scenario, inherently you won't be as successful as you would have been had you kind of listened for what is the core thing that is important in that scenario that might be different from the last one. And that's been, I think it's been good advice that um, I've certainly carried in the last two CFO roles. It was very different being the CFO at uh, Travel Edge to you know the skills that are required at Tulip. And I think um, if you flip that advice, it also is enough reason for a lot of folks who might be intimidated by kind of the leadership aspect of the role. You know, every single one of us, as long as we work hard and we seek out the experiences that um, are needed, every single one of us will have what it takes to play that role. Um, we just, we just need to, uh, you know, get the skills, but also believe in our in, in our own abilities and our own unique vantage lens that we bring. Wow, that's definitely amazing advice. And, and thanks again for, for sharing that. Sai, this has been an amazing conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely and learned a ton of, uh, from you. So thank you so much for, for sharing all of that and, and talking to us about your experiences, both as a CFO at many companies in, in different verticals, and now how you're translating that into Tulip and, and, and software and SaaS, as well as talking about metrics and KPIs as it relates to those and uh, the process around M&A divestitures and how, how to best prepare for that uh, being in the finance seat. So really appreciated this chat and thank you again, Sai. Thank you for having me. It was a compliment when you reached out. Awesome. Thanks again. Take care. Bye now. 
And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. What a fascinating discussion with Cy Fard, CFO at Tulip Retail. Check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. Thank you for listening all the way through and joining me on this journey inside finance at a tech company. Until next time, take care.